This week's episode of Pull Up Podcast is brought to you by Mac Weldon. Mac Weldon's mission is simple, to make sure all your basics and beyond are smartly designed and shopping for them is easy and convenient. And frankly, Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. Mac Weldon will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants, and more that you will ever wear. They have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Not only do Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. It's good for working out, going to work, going out on dates, just everyday life. I hopped on the site recently, and in a few minutes, I got myself some sweats and socks that I love to wear while traveling with the team. They keep me nice, warm, and comfortable. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter the promo code PULLUP at checkout. You know, I shouldn't just call a play to call it. I should understand why I'm calling this play and know how the defense is going to guard it. And that's a, that's kind of a part of vision. Sight is, okay, when I dribble down to the left side of the other court and get a low pick and roll, they're going to blue it or ice it, which means they're going to keep me, you know, on the sideline. That's sight. This is the perfect era for positionless basketball. The perfect era for 6'6", 6'5", 6'7", men who can shoot, stretch the floor. Versatility guys, type of era where a Julius Randle can initiate an offense, a Zion who's coming to the NBA, be a screener or a guy who's receiving screens as a ball handler with more players, you know, coming around and, and being able to do more things offensively, the game has changed and evolved. The same things that make the game easier, make the game harder. The skill set at the collegiate level is completely different. Now you step into the NBA and you're talking about the best 400 players in the world. There's guys at the end of the bench who can go score 20 on the right team. You know what I'm saying? So that kind of changes the perspective and how you play. Welcome to the CC Sabathia episode of Pull Up. That's right, episode number 52. Currently in Portland, Oregon. Um, didn't travel with the team, so I was able to kind of rehab, uh, progress, work on conditioning, movements, physical manual therapy, uh, eating a lot of meals from Chef B, you know, kind of tightening things up and, you know, figuring out ways to get healthy as soon as possible. Guys did a great job on the road, winning three out of four games. Uh, obviously, uh, we've played three out of four uh, without NERC uh, since the NERC injury, so just continue to try to figure out ways to to win, figure out ways to advance and potentially get home court advantage as the playoffs approaches. And we have a game tomorrow against, actually I can't say tomorrow since today is Tuesday. We play the Memphis Grizzlies on Wednesday um, at home. A chance for us to get 50 wins this season. So really looking forward to to that game. I will not be playing uh, against the Memphis Grizzlies as well. Continue to try to progress and get ready as we get closer to the playoffs. Uh, Jordan is currently in Kona. Hawaii. So let's welcome Jordan to the pull-up pod as always. Jordan, how's how's vacation in Hawaii going? Were you able to, uh, to catch some games uh, before you got out there these last few days? Definitely watching all the games and re-watching him. Uh, Hawaii's incredible. Uh, you know, I will say that as we were just talking about before we went on the started recording, you know, at some point it's hard. It, you almost have to unwind and take a step back, but it's hard for me to do that because you know, I love hoops so much, and with all this basketball on, NBA and college, I really don't find myself unplugging, and uh, I was really, I was basically writing till 2.30 in the morning last night, and I woke up today, and I was really excited because it was like, uh, 
I felt like I was I was on vacation, but I was still able to be somewhat productive. And to me, that's like the good balance of vacation where you can still be with the family, see, but you can also enjoy yourself. And I feel like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I feel I, when you go on vacation, isn't it pretty much always the case that you're finding a gym to work out or at least do something physically to uh, get the blood moving? Yeah, it's very hard for me to take a vacation without doing something, um, whether that's uh, physically, you know, working out in the weight room, getting some cardio in on the elliptical, the treadmill, uh, foam rolling, stretching. Just getting um, a sweat. Cardio cardio on the bike. Yeah, any type of sweat, whether that's running on the beach or potentially going to a gym. Uh, most of the time, uh, I feel like I need to do something. I've had a few vacations where I just stretch foam roll and do hot yoga or some sort of uh, activity. And then I've had one vacation in my life where I went six days of essentially nothing. And um, it was an interesting time because you you kind of get restless. You get restless. You start yeah. eating. You start looking around. You're like, man, I should, I should be doing something. So sometimes you just got to give your body that break, man, as much as we move around and travel and continuously put stress on the body. Sometimes it just needs that shock of relaxation and comfort it's so true and i think it helps you but to your point you know six days five days that's about as much as i can go without being productive and uh you know for me it's like writing or you know broadcasting or reading or or just you know staying in it and then also from a from a physical standpoint i am much more productive when i'm working out and feeling like i'm accomplished something and usually you know if you bang that out in the morning then you can have a nice day of uh, enjoying yourself and being with the family. In my case, the babies, because, you know, I got two little ones. And then actually, uh, you know, maybe at night retiring and, and doing some more writing. But but I, it's it, there's always balance with everything. And uh, as you know, that is the key. One of the keys to happiness is, is achieving that balance, especially on vacation. So um, without further ado, uh, final four. I guess my biggest thing for you, CJ, is what team out of the four do you feel most differently about? Auburn, Virginia, uh, Michigan State, and Texas Tech. If one of those teams you look at from the start of the tournament to now, who do you feel the most different about? I think I feel the most different about Texas Tech and Auburn. Um, Not watching a lot of college basketball uh, throughout the season. I know Tom Izzo is a great coach. I know about Winston. I know about some of the players and historically how they've done in the tournament. So I'm not surprised. Uh, Virginia has, you know, a lottery pick. Another guy who was a second team All American or third team All American, and guy and just all around solid team. And their coach by Tony Bennett, who's a really good coach. So I'm not surprised by them. Auburn obviously has a good coach. Was in the SEC. Um, I think they won the championship or lost. Uh, I can't remember what happened, but I feel like they've been in the in the news and media a little bit, but uh, have definitely surprised a lot of teams by getting to the Final Four in Texas Tech. They surprised me because they don't play on TV a lot. They have a guy who's probably going to go top 10 or lottery uh, in the shooting guard, but they just physically, they challenge you. They get up in you defensively. And I, I watched Texas Tech a few years ago when my homie Devontae Williams from Canton uh, actually went there out of Junco and uh, played well. So I'm familiar with the jerseys, the style of play, but uh, I'm happy for their success. But I think that historically coaching um, is one of the things that, you know, kind of shows along with talent down the stretch when you get to Final Four and championships. So I like Virginia and Tom Izzo's chances uh, against both of those teams. Yeah, I, I, I would probably go Auburn because uh, I, I thought that team was somewhat of an enigma all year. Um, and then you saw in the first round when they almost got beat 
by UC Irvine. And then, you know, I, I thought they had a great chance to be North Carolina, but at the same time, like you, you almost couldn't trust them this season because they weren't guarding people. And now that they are, as we saw against Carolina, and they're still able to get downhill with Bryce Brown and really Jared Harper making plays, uh, that team's just been incredibly impressive. Texas Tech, Chris Beard's been there three years, CJ. They, he's taken them to two Elite Eights now, including a Final Four. They never been, they have never been to a Final Four well, since 1980, I, th- I believe. And he, he has completely transformed that program. They're first nationally in adjusted defensive efficiency. But more importantly, they're finally able to score. That, that's really been the, the issue for a lot of great defensive teams. Uh, and then really Texas Tech last year even, uh, when they lost in Elite Eight, they, they had a hard, hard time scoring in the half court. This year, they have been remarkably efficient, 30th in the country, total offense. And, um, you know, you look at Jared Culver, who you mentioned, he, he's Big 12 Player of the Year. He's as good as it gets. The coaching, to me, is what really will matter in the Final Four, more so than anything else. Um, I just get the sense that, especially when you have a guy like Tom Izzo that can has been here, has been to seven Final Fours, now eight, has won a national title. Uh, I think he will he will have tremendous influence in this in this final four. I was talking to Izzo a couple weeks ago um, after our pod, and I felt like he was really comfortable with this team. I did what I did not realize is just how you know, I guess how good of a story it is that they've lost two of their best players, and they this is not their most talented, even even close to their most talented team, CJ and Michigan State is still able to be in this position. It's it's really impressive. Yeah, I think he's done a tremendous job of rallying his troops. And one of the things you, you learn about these types of teams is they have a culture. They have a culture of hard-nosed, hard-nosed uh, players who talent is there. They're definitely talented. You got four-star, you got five-star, you got three-star players. But their will to win and their heart, their intensity, their understanding of what Izzo wants to get out of them. And then his job... And what he's done historically is getting the best out of his players, you know, being able to, like you said before, have two of the two of the better players in your team go down and still figure out a way to get to the uh, final four. Now, after beating uh, Duke and what seemed like a very, very highly anticipated matchup where you have three potential lottery picks, obviously the number one pick, probably the number two or three pick in R.J. Barrett, depending on where the dominoes fall. But he's able to, you know essentially coach his way through that game, put his players in a position to succeed and execute down the stretch. So I think, you know, historically, you know, coaching has, has been a deciding factor. So my question for you would be, now that Calipari's got a lifetime deal, is it time for guys like Izzo, guys like Tony Bennett, guys like you said before, Texas Tech being in two consecutive elite eights, do you see more coaches looking forward to kind of, you know, settling on a long, long-term deal to kind of scare away you know, movement or potentially going to the NBA? That's a good question. I, I didn't even think about that because basically Calipari, I mean, Kentucky was just saying, well, we're not letting you, we're not letting you leave. We're going to make the offer too sweet. Um, there only are, there's really only a few institutions in terms of coaches, you know, Krzyzewski, uh, Izzo, uh, I guess Roy Williams at this point, Bill Self. But, you know, for the most part, we see movement every year even at big-time schools. I, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw a couple more lifetime deals like an Izzo um, because he has, as he told us, he has a couple times really thought about the NBA. But in terms of a guy like Chris Beard, who's still a pretty young coach, uh, or somebody like you know Nate Oates, for example, who went from Buffalo to Alabama, these guys that are risers that have had success in the tournament, I don't, I don't really see that happening. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Like you said before, he's younger uh, at Texas Tech and still kind of building that resume, uh, still probably wants that freedom, flexibility, and comfort. And the team, obviously, in the institution is still trying to figure out ways to expand on what they've done, you know, win a championship, continue to bring in uh, elite-level recruits like Jared Culver and um, try to get as many wins as possible while they can. So that's a, a great point you bring up. So then my, my follow-up question would be, Who's going to win the national championship? You had Gonzaga winning it all, and um, <laughs> although they got far, it's now impossible for them to win it all. So who are you taking now? So I immediately shifted. As soon as Gonzaga lost, I shifted to Michigan State. I thought they'd beat Duke. I, I actually wrote about it, and I, and I thought Auburn could beat Carolina. I wrote about that. I don't just say it. I actually put it on paper because um, when I'm wrong, I don't say it. I don't, I don't tell. I don't remind anybody, <laughs> but when I'm right, I can remind you. Uh, so, so I'll go Michigan State. I think – We've talked so much about uh, great guard play in the tournament and how much it dictates wins and losses. I think Cassius Winston is uh, as good a player as we've seen um, that Tom Izzo has had from a point guard spot. I was talking to a, a former NBA coach yesterday about you know finding uh, a home for him in the NBA. Just curious, like who does he compare to? And it surprised me, but maybe it shouldn't. He said Mateen Cleaves. That's who Cassius Winston is to him. You know, not maybe not incredibly explosive, but a guy that will run your team, can score when needed, doesn't make bad decisions, excellent in pick and roll, and is and we hear this a lot, that extension of the coach on the floor. So for me, it's it's Tom Izzo, Michigan State winning number two, and uh, I guess number three all time, but number two under Izzo. And um, I think it's a great story considering the injuries they've had and just the fact that, like we said earlier, see, this is not his most talented team that he's had in East Lansing. Yeah, I, I hope I hate to say it, but I hope Izzo wins it as well. Um, looking at you know what he's been able to accomplish throughout his career, looking at this roster he has right now, being a guy from Ohio, you know, you're not really fond of Michigan, but in this case, you know, it's Michigan State. It's Izzo. He's a good dude. He's done things the right way with his program and developing players. And I think this will be great for Winston's a professional career if he's able to take this team, you know, undermanned. Um, to the national championship and beat, you know, the likes of whoever they may face in the national championship. I think that'll be a great story and uh, ultimately a great ending for him to essentially d declare for the draft and, and head out. So yeah, hopefully Michigan state can win it. Uh, that would be, that would be dope to see. And uh, the comparisons to Mateen Cleese, I think they're spot on because of his pace. He plays at, a, an, at an elite pace. He's able to change his speeds. He's methodical. He can get to his spots. He can hit the pull-up jumper. He can finish around the basket. And he's figuring out ways to get seven, eight assists a game while winning. I think that's the most important thing, figuring out ways uh, to win. And uh, that, that kind of you know, solidifies who you are as a basketball player based on your ability to, to help your team win in different situations. Yeah, I, I would totally agree. Who's who? What's the tougher cover? A guy that is uh, kind of diminutive, I guess, diminutive inside. Somebody like a Carson Edwards, uh, who who obviously was incredible in the tournament. The ability to um, change speeds really well, or Kemba, you know, uh, somebody around six feet, or like a big guard that's six four that can put you in the post, kind of like you, um, and and you know maybe cause more issues with their size, but doesn't have that elite change of direction or speed do you do you find one tougher than the other i think that for taller guys it's harder to guard small players you know those kimbas those trey youngs those guys who are like 5 10 5 11 maybe six foot but super fast change of direction stop on a dime can draw contact i think for taller guys it's harder to guard them i think for like me being six four um, I don't really like to guard super small guys, but I can use my length to my advantage, my six, 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 seven wingspan to my advantage. So that's helpful. 
Um, I think there's nothing like guarding that 6'7", 6'8", 6'9", guy who can shoot right over top of you like a Paul George or even Clay. Right. Those guys who, you know, releases are so fast. They can lean on you like a Chris Middleton. They can lean on you. And and that type of uh, game is different. You know, it takes more out of your legs, more off-ball movement stuff. And I think, you know, being 6'4", 6'5", having guarded 5'11", and having guarded 6'7", 6'8", I think depending on the type of 6'7", 6'8", player, it's hard to guard them because of, their ability to do different things, like a Paul George who can do everything. He can post, he got a fadeaway, he can play pick and roll. Uh, I think it just, it makes the game more difficult for for different types of coverages. And PG's like 6'9", right? I mean, he's enormous. He's a different species in terms of like a wing who's the size of a right. power forward, but moves so like a skilled. point guard and shoots like a shooting guard. Like he's, <laughs> yeah, he's got the perfect combination of you know, athleticism, size, speed, conditioning, Shot credibility, shot speed from dribble to shot is crazy. So I think he's a he's a super tough cover for guys, but it just it's different for everybody. Some players like guarding six nine, six eight guys because they can get into them, get under them, take away right. their space and make it more difficult. Right. Yeah, it's it's hard to get under a five eleven guy because he's he's the low man. He's always going to win those types of battles. Yeah, I think uh, two things for me. One is when you have that kind of guy, the the more arsenal, the more skills you have in your arsenal whether it be passing, floater, uh, you know, pick and roll, like the ability to do more things just makes it more challenging, especially if you're 5'11 or 6 feet where you're, where you're so, so quick and, and shifty and nimble. Uh, and then secondly, you know, th- this is the perfect era for somebody like Paul George or even somebody like Zion, who we haven't really talked about, um, the perfect era for Zion to come into the NBA, this positionless type of basketball where – you know, maybe he guards three or four spots. You could put him at the three, the four. You could use him in, you know, so-called death lineup. And the fact that he's able to be positionless really is a, a big beneficial uh, or super beneficial to your team because of how many different things he can do. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the perfect era for positionless basketball, the perfect era for six, 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 five, six, seven, four men who can shoot, stretch the floor, versatility guys, type of era where a Julius Randle can initiate an offense, a Zion, like you said before, who's coming to the NBA uh, any day now, could potentially initiate an offense, be a screener or a guy who's receiving screens, you know, uh, as, a, as a ball handler. Um, being able to have a Giannis in this era who leads the league in dunks, uh, but can initiate the offense, you know, he's getting six, seven assists a game, uh, Euro stepping, you know, still shooting jumpers and, and doing a lot of different things. And as Shaq said uh, on uh, Tuesday's episode of his podcast, uh, Giannis is a better is better than he was because he's more opportunities to showcase more of his talents. Uh, they kind of put you in a box back in the day historically. You know, you either shot threes or you dunked or you shot mid-range jumpers. There weren't a lot of guys who did a combination of all those things. And if you were, you know, 6'9", six, 6'10", six, and you shot jump shots, it was considered soft. And nowadays it's encouraged and, and a sign more so of versatility and skill set. And obviously with the European influence and with more players, you know, coming coming around and, and being able to do more things offensively, the game has changed and evolved. But I think that was interesting that, you know, Shaq said that Giannis has more opportunity to showcase, and he does, you know, in this era. And I think that he's a little bit more nimble, obviously, in terms of his, his size and body and, and how he moves on the court with, with his fluidity. Yeah, oh, I mean, he's you talked about different species, CJ. I don't think basketball will ever see another player like Giannis. I, I, I had the chance to see him up close and personal this year um, 
I was doing a story on the Bucks, and it's specifically Vin Baker, who works with Yanni on a basically day to day basis. And what what's crazy about Giannis is you don't realize well you don't realize a how big he is until you really see him. But secondly, you don't realize how nimble and explosive he is, and how he can. We talk about getting downhill. We, we, we said it with John Morant last week. Well, Giannis is seven feet, and he gets downhill like he's six feet. But then he can just use those inspector gadget arms, extend the ball, and really do whatever he wants. Right. Play, make, pass, uh, you know, dunk. And, and he's not bothered by anybody because he sees directly over the top of essentially everybody that's guarding him. And if you want to come out and guard him, he's going to go by you. And if you don't, if you want to make him shoot, he's still going to go at you because he's so relentless attacking the basket. Right. I think that's one of the things he's gotten better at is closing space. You know, when they sag off of him and, and you know encourage him to shoot the jump shots, sometimes he shoots it, but other times he closes the space and uses that as an advantage for him to attack, pick up speed, get downhill, get into his euro steps, uh, figure out how to survey the defense as he's driving because of the Bucks' offense. They have so much spacing. You know, so many open opportunities and gaps for him to take advantage of with shooters, you know, in, in the four spots on the court, the two corners and one of the wings uh, as he drives. So the reason I'm really happy you brought that up to go full circle with, with Zion is um, I, I would argue that both he and R.J. Barrett will have so much more success in the NBA because of that. A, they're going to have more shooters to kick to because Duke's offense is incredibly, as as we've discussed a lot, it's so uh, discombobulated in the half court because they can't spread the floor. It's so clogged. But then B, the, the openness of the NBA, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the openness of the NBA with Zion and Barrett, won't they have more success because there'll be more driving lanes and more space and more opportunities to run? I definitely think they will thrive in the NBA environment with the spacing, uh, with the athletes that will be on their side. Obviously, they're very explosive athletes of their own right, but having teammates who can get out and run with you, having teammates who can make those type of plays at an elite level uh, will kind of change uh, what they were seeing from a, a defensive standpoint on how in, in, the, in the collegiate game, the defense loads up constantly. You know, they're in the paint. They're running zone defenses. They're helping off of guys who can't shoot, helping off of guys who are non-threats more as – more so looking at the NBA, they help a lot. There's a lot more spacing. There's three in the key. There's transition. It's more of an open game with pick and roll and shooters around you. I think they'll both thrive uh, depending on what team they're drafted to, depending on what role that organization thrust upon them, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, go go do your thing like Trey Young or like Luka Doncic where the ball's in your hands. You have, you know, the most pick and rolls per, per 100 possessions in the NBA like a Trey Young who he's able to make – decisions on his own. If I want to shoot from the logo, I shoot from the logo. If I want to come off a pick and roll and throw a no-look pass to the corner, I can do that. If I want to throw a lob to Collins because he's there and he's always running the rim, I can do that. Or you got Luka Doncic, who's you know second or third in the NBA in step-back jumpers, him and Blake Griffin, along with James Harden. Uh, if I want to set, step back at any moment, I can step back and shoot a three. I can post up and get an ISO uh, out, of a, out, of bounce, out of bounce set. And I think that that freedom that your organization or your team gives you kind of allows you to really showcase who you are, gives you a chance to play through uh, mistakes, and it also gives you a chance to figure out how you can be successful in the NBA. And I think Zion, as well as RJ, will have all the opportunity in the world to kind of showcase who they are and also time to figure out uh, who they are as they continue to progress in their NBA careers. So if the college game is more um, 
crowded and as Michigan State did to Barrett and to a degree Williamson, you know, really forcing that, forcing them to go right and sitting on that left hand and loading up because they knew there wasn't a threat in the corner or they knew there wasn't a threat to skip on the wing. If, if that's the college game, if that's what's really hard about it, what's what's really hard about the NBA game? We, we talk about all the space and the ability to get out and transition and make plays and pick and roll, but what would then be the equivalent or something similar or even not so similar about the NBA game that is really difficult, CJ? Is it just the length and the quality of athlete? Yeah, I think the same things that make the game easier make the game harder. I mean, obviously, less space in college means the, the defensive end, you have more help. You know, when somebody's attacking you, they have less space to operate, less move, uh, movement and space to operate. Obviously, the refs call the game differently, and the skill set at the collegiate level is completely different. Now you step into the NBA, and you're talking about the best 400 players in the world. There's guys at the end of the bench who can go score 20 on the right team. You know what I'm saying? So that kind of changes the perspective and how you play. Zion's good in transition. He's good with space. He's good in pick and rolls. Uh, R.J. Barrett's good in space. He's good with pick and rolls. But those same things they're good at, they're going to have to defend every night. You know, R.J.'s going to have to guard pick and rolls, depending on what position he plays. Or he's going to have to guard tall wings who run off screens like Clay Thompson or tall, you know, you know, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, guard like J.J. Redick if you're in the Eastern Conference who's constantly moving without the ball. That changes the dynamic of the game because although you have space on offense, um, you have that, those same deficiencies, the defensive end, when you're on defense. There's shooters all around you. There's space. There's closeouts. There's pick and roll coverages. There's guys who really know how to manipulate the game so that it can become harder. Obviously, athletes are better. The length is crazy. The adjustments you have to make on, you know, you see a pass and make a pass, it's too late. You have to see the pass and make it before it happens. You know what I mean? Like in terms of having sight versus vision, you know, being able to see that, all right, my lamp is right to my right. But if I dribble to my left, that lamp's not moving with me. I have to be able to make a certain type of pass at a certain angle. And I think the best point guards in the NBA now, the best point guards historically, could sense movement, kind of like a quarterback who throws the out before the guy makes the route and breaks the route off. And I think the Jason Kidds, um, Luka Doncic to a degree now being able to make certain passes. You got John Wall, you had John Stockton, you got CP who can manipulate a game. It's like chess and everybody else is moving in slow motion because they already – know how certain players are going to move once they come off that screen to the right or left. And I think as you get more experience, you get more comfortable with those things. That's great stuff. I'm, I'm just in awe of what you talk about in length with um, sight and vision and the difference. Um, I, I wrote a story. I don't even know if you remember this a couple of years on you. Do, you. do you remember this? And we talked about sight and vision and the difference. Can you just go through briefly that, transitional process for you right. from your first, second year to then your third and fourth where you were able to all of a sudden see the game through an entirely different lens based on your experience? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I didn't ex explain it in great detail, but one of the things I've, I've been working on and I'm constantly working on with DV and our coaching staff is you know, making the right plays, seeing things before they happen, calling plays, understanding how they're going to guard it before I call it. You know, I shouldn't just call a play to call it. I should understand why I'm calling this play and know how the defense is going to guard it. And that's a, that's kind of a part of vision. Sight is, okay, when I dribble down to the left side of the other court and get a low pick and roll, they're going to blue it or ice it, which means they're going to keep me, you know, on the sideline. That's sight. Like, I dribble down, they get into the blue, 
I make a decision based on that. Vision is knowing that, okay, I'm going to dribble down to the right side of the court because I want to get left. And when I come off and I'm playing against the Utah Jazz, I know Rudy Gobert is going to be back. He's going to be back in a drop. Vision is understanding that even before I even come off that screen, Rudy's going to be in a drop. Joe Ingles or Donovan Mitchell is going to be chasing me hard. And the Utah Jazz, are, uh, they help. They help and they don't give up corner three. So I know there's going to be help coming from the top of the key because they want to encourage wing threes. They want to encourage arc threes, but they don't want to give up corner threes. So vision is knowing that, all right, I'm coming off. I'm going to have, I'm going to have Maurice Harkless on the left wing, two dribbles into the paint, bang, make the pass. That's vision. Before it even happens, I thought about this process. I manipulated the defense to give me this pass to Mo Harkless right here at the wing, as opposed to coming off without a plan. Rudy Gobert's in the, Rudy Gobert's in the drop. Joe Ingles is chasing over hard, and I make a decision late because I, I had to see it first to throw it. That's the, that's the kind of the difference between vision and sight. It's manipulating the game, knowing what's going to happen before you do it, or understanding that Dame drives and kicks it to me. It's going to be a hard closeout. So I can either shoot it, attack the drive, or understand that I have one pass right next to me to my left where I'm going to let him fly by. I'm going to attack the next help man, make the next pass, bang, three. So those are the type of things that I've kind of worked on and I've done a better job late um, of making those plays, understanding why I'm making certain plays before it happens. And it's just a constant struggle and a constant uh, learning process that we all go through as players. And it starts with breaking down the film. It starts with recognizing how you can improve upon it. And then it starts with applying it to games. Whether you succeed or fail, it's that's irrelevant. It's about understanding like, okay, I didn't do this right. Let me let me try to tighten this up next game. Uh, I had a floater in the lane, but I also had somebody in the corner for a three on the right. Even though I made the floater, understand like, okay, I got him. So next time I get into the lane, the same thing is going to happen again. Bang, I can make that pass to Chief in the right corner because I know he was there. I seen him. I just decided not to throw it. Or I seen him. I'm going to throw it this time. And I tell him like, yo, I got you next time. Same play. I'm going to get into the lane. You're going to be open. That's vision versus sight. That's unbelievable. Knowing Knowing the why and not just the what, because NBA defenses are that much more complicated and intelligent than college defenses. And then on the other side, defensively, a lot of this applies as well, right, for you? Yeah, defensively, you know, it's completely different at the NBA level than it is in college. Terminology is going to be different. You're going to be icing the side, depending on who you're playing against. Uh, certain players like to get middle. You know, Ingles likes to get to that left hand, you know, coming out of a pin down. You got Clay Thompson. He can come out both sides, but he prefers to come to come off the um, the left. If you're facing if you're facing the basket, he, yeah, he prefers to go off the yeah. left wing so he can go right left into it. So, like, every player has a tendency, and based on their tendency, that's how the offense is ran. Nicholas Batum loves to get to his right hand, so a lot of his pin downs – come out the left corner so he can get to his right hand. Kimba likes to stop behind and shoot threes, so the bigs have to be up and not in a drop. You got to be at the line of the at the line of the screen. Dame likes to shoot deep threes. So a lot of times the big is up. And that's what leaves you opportunities to split. That's what leaves you opportunities to kind of drag the pick and roll out and throw it back to the big. Or you got KD who they run they run pinch posts and and mid iso plays for knowing that he can go left or right. He's basically equally efficient going left and right. So they just put him at the elbow and say, hey, you do what you want to do. Let him see the court and he can make passes over the top of the defense or he can shoot over the top of the defense. So I think the, the biggest difference is 
you know what people's tendencies are. You know what players like to get left and what players like to get right. James is going to step back left. His percentage is like, I don't know, 40-something percent going left versus a 20 or 15 percent drop going right. You know that, but these guys are so good, they're still going to get left, and their teams and their offensive strategies are going to be centered around getting to their strengths. Knowing that, all right, CJ is going to snake back uh, on certain possessions. He's going to snake back. How do we pre- prevent CJ from snaking? How do we prevent Chief from getting corner threes? How do we prevent Nurk from getting 20, 10, and 5 and being able to make certain passes in our motion down offense? Like Teams go into the games understanding what players are good at and then trying to figure out how to stop it. But the the scheming and the understanding of the offense is, is completely different from college to the NBA because guys are still going to be able to get you know to their strengths because there's a reason why they're here. From an individual standpoint, when you sit on a guy's move or one of his go-tos, who are some of the three, four best guys in the league see at countering and getting to exactly where they want to go, even when you correctly sat on their move and took away their first or even second option? Right. Yeah, I think the elite of the elite. You look at guys who are the most creative Um Kawhi has gotten more creative with his ball handling. Really? Um, he's always been efficient. He's, he's always been able to get to certain spots on the court, but now he's comfortable with handling the ball. He's comfortable with picking rolls. He can ISO. Um, his handle has improved immensely, and he's going to get to certain spots on the court regardless of how you guard him. He's got a, a unique skill set and more creative freedom. I think Kyrie has the most creative freedom in terms of counters. Like You can send him one way, but he's going to go wherever he wants to go based on your body, You know how you reach, how the defense uh, kind of – changes and in, in switches and shifts. He has a crazy amount of com, com, combinations, control, and confidence and freedom to where he can do whatever he wants on the basketball court because that ball's on a string. James Harden, he plays with you. He lulls you to, sh- to sleep. A lot of times people say he over dribbles and he does dribble a lot, but I think that's for for him to scan the floor, look at you look at you in your eyes and also get a rhythm. Every time he's taking a dribble, he's feeling the ball. He's understanding, all right, I can get a step back right if I want. I can get a step back left if I want. I got P.J. Tucker right here to the right. I got Eric Gordon to my left. I got CP space. I got the big coming, the big rolling. So he's, he's scanning the floor while he's taking those six, seven, eight dribbles, and then he gets into his crossover. And if you don't bite, he'll snatch you back and keep going. If you do bite, the counter's coming. So I think those types of players... Obviously, Kevin Durant has counters. Um, I think Kimball Walker is very creative um, in terms of stopping, going, changing speed, shooting threes, coming off screens. He's got the floater. He's got the pull-up. Um, those types of players uh, are very good at what they do. Devin Booker, he's going to get to certain spots. Uh, you just have to live with makes or misses at, at some points in the game. You see the streak he's on now. He's a proficient scorer who can play in the pick and roll. He can make passes. He's got a mid-post game. He can score in transition. He's starting to draw fouls. Like Those are certain things that you know, you go into the game like, all right, he's going to try to get to these elbows. He's going to get some post-ups. He's going to get some transition threes. Make it difficult. Make him work on defense, too, because that kind of tires the legs out. And then, you know, randomly send double teams. And there's a lot of guys in the league where you just have to randomly, hey, maybe this possession, let's trap him. Change it up. We don't want him to see the same looks all night. What about somebody like Clay or Steph, especially Steph, who is not only nifty with the ball, but so much of the work is done prior to them catching the pass because they're running off so many screens. But unlike a JJ, especially with someone like Steph, where once he gets it, then he can go make a move and he's so creative. So just take me through the ability of Steph 
and Clay to a degree, but really Curry, where so much of the work is done prior to him catching the pass and then having to come down and sit in a stance knowing that there's going to be multiple ball screens within the coming couple seconds. Yeah, they're unique covers. And, you know, going into those games, I try to have a low usage, you know, in, in practice, low usage of how I'm utilizing my legs because that's a guaranteed three-mile game, three miles of running around chasing them uh, based on our offense, defensively, uh, how they move around. And they're both in elite shape. They move around constantly and able to get their shots off fast. They got great base. Um, they change directions with the ball and without the ball really well. Obviously, Steph, he runs the offense. Draymond initiates the offense sometimes. KD initiates the offense sometimes. But he's getting pick and rolls. He's getting, I get a pick and roll. I don't like it. I throw it. I come off a double. I come off of a pin down. I'm constantly moving. He sets back screens. And one of the things that makes him so hard to guard is he's always moving. His team's always looking for him. His team's always screening for him. And he's always aware of, you know, opportunities and trying to figure out ways to score, whether that's setting a back screen. You know, one of the one of the ways they always say in basketball, the easiest way to get open is to get somebody else open. He's constantly trying to set back screens when they go split posts. He'll go screen for Clay when they run that pinch post action. He'll set a back screen for KD and then come off a screen. They're constantly moving, or he'll he'll initiate the fast break, throw it to Draymond, come down, circle around the basket, and he constantly is getting open threes. You talk about one of the greatest shooters ever, if not the greatest shooter ever. And historically, year in and year out, the Warriors lead the league and wide open three-pointers. Not because teams are trying to leave them open, but because they're constantly moving. They have so many threats out there and they put you in a position to where you always have to help. You're always overextending. You know, somebody's in the corner, you close out on him, extra pass, bang. Somebody's in the corner, you close out on him, you rotate again, extra pass, extra pass, bang. And I think that's what makes them so difficult to guard is not just because they move around, but because they have a culture of share, you know, like 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 they their slogan is, you know, whatever it is. Uh, out there in the Bay Area, um, basically strength in numbers. They have a lot of numbers. They got a lot of strength and they got a lot of movement. And they figured out a way to kind of monopolize on ball movement, player movement with a mix of pick and roll stuff. Yeah, but then see, not only do you got to guard all those pin downs and the, the dribble handoffs and the staggers and the doubles, I also need you to go get 20-25 tonight. Yeah, it's and like I say, there's a reason why they pay certain players the amount of money they, they pay them, regardless of what the fans think or, or how they view a player, it's hard to score 20-plus points a night, guard one of the best players on the other on the other side, be at the top of the scouting report to where they're game planning for you. They're game planning for how to stop you, how to prevent you from getting certain shots. And there's only a handful of guys who can do those types of things. And looking at the NBA, being able to make the playoffs consistently, being able to try to get 50 wins, being able to get out the first round, get to the second round, get to the third round. You play an 82-game season with a high usage rate, a high load, offensively and defensively, because regardless of what position you play, if you guard the one or the two, 60 pick and rolls a night are coming at the one and the two, the, the, between those two positions, whether that's the guy you're guarding or movement into a pick and roll or a drag and transition. So it's a constant of, Defending, fighting over screens, chasing on screens. Then you break on offense. You're, you're going back in transition, and you might have a pin down for yourself. You might have a mid-pick and roll, a side pick and roll. You might have a flare, depending on your offense. And it's a lot of movement, and that's why guys get those um, those stress injuries of just a lot of compounding, a lot of running, a lot of banging. And that's why sleep, hydration, treatment, therapy, rest, recovery, all those things are 
extremely important in this game because you got to go chase a Steph, and then the next night you might have to go chase a, a James Harden, which is all on ball, coming at you full speed, trying to draw fouls, shooting step back threes, high tempo. And then you think you get a night off and you got to go chase Buddy Hield around screens in Sacramento, who's going to come off of pin downs, he's going to come off of flares. He's got a quick release. And then you think you got a day off and you got to go play the Phoenix Suns and Devin Booker's trying to score 50. <laughs> so it's just a, a constant of going against the elites. And that's the difference between college and the NBA. The college season is ending right now. Zion got hurt. He missed about three games. He played 33, 34 games. You're not even at all-star break yet after 33, 34 games. You're playing 16, 17, 18 games in a month for seven months. That's the difference. And then just when you think that the season's you know, gotten hard, you try to make a playoff push. Then you get to the playoffs and it starts over again at a higher intensity against the best teams in the world who have nothing but time on their hands to scout, figure out all your play calls. You call the play, they echo the play, they know your play. Now it's about how you score in the, in the half-court offense when the other team knows your play. I just want to take a nap right now. I mean, this There'll is... plenty of time for naps, my friend. This is this Plenty is of such... time for naps, man. We didn't even talk about my Blazers, man. I know. Got, this wait is... a minute. Shout out to my guy, Damian Lillard, right now, man. Player of the week. How about that? How good, how good has he been? We won seven of eight, yeah. eight of nine. Yeah. Dame out there hooping, leading the troops. Bench is stepping up. Shout out to my guy E.T. Triple-double off the bench, five for five from the field, less than 25 minutes. First time in the history of the NBA. The history. I mean. Ennis Cantor, 20 and 15. Seth Curry, balling. Rodney Hood, balling. Jake Lehman, balling. Zach Collins, balling. Myers Leonard, balling. I'm forgetting somebody. How about Al? Balling. Chief Alvarucamino. Yeah. Balling. Maurice Harkless. Balling. Who I forget? You're forgetting Mo. Mo Harkless. Balling. Dunking on everybody. Headband Mo. But yeah, I think the team is playing well. Obviously, the injuries have, have hurt our team, but the, the camaraderie, the chemistry, the culture, the process of understanding what happened to us last year, what's happened to us historically, uh, we, have a, we have a good sense of self. And then everybody's kind of rallying together, understanding what's at stake, understanding what we still can accomplish. Uh, we can get home court. We can we can take care of 50-plus wins with a win against the Memphis Grizzlies. We can continue to strive for greatness as we get closer to this playoffs, understanding that there's a lot of things we still can accomplish. And, and I think Dame's the leader and the spearhead of that and figuring out ways to get everybody to to bring their best foot forward. He he has – I mean, he's he's a great player. I mean, a great player. I don't think I've ever seen him play this well or at least – He's just—he's so dominant right now. Like you know, he, without you, you know, he's. Think about how much harder it is for for him in theory without you to take the load off. Now he's going out every night, and he is the focal point of every game plan. Like I, I've talked to coaches around the league that say, you know, we play Portland. One of the toughest things about it is you got a game plan for two incredibly you know talented guards that are going to score 20, 25 every night. But now without you. He he's the guy that they're loading up on, and he's still getting it, and he's efficient, and he's getting it within the offense. Right, and he's getting ten assists a night or whatever it is. Um, he's essentially you know broken his career record for for ten assist games uh, during that streak where he was getting thirty and ten, thirty and ten, twenty, twelve, seventeen and six, and fourteen, thirteen assists. He's been really balling and figuring out ways to get the best out of everybody while still scoring twenty five, thirty at night. I know that we don't talk about Dame a lot league wide as you know locking guys down, but he's 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 guarding. I mean, it's tough, but he's guarding. At least it looks like it. Yeah, he's definitely improved defensively, understanding play calls, 
understanding how to maneuver his way around screens and uh, along and across screens, uh, figuring out how to be more effective with his movements. Um, we've worked on defensive stuff with drills uh, as a team, uh, figuring out how to improve our shell, figuring out how to be a top 10, top 15 defensive team. And we've done that the last two years, the last three seasons. We've been close to top 10 in both offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. So um, it's been a point of emphasis for ours. And um, he's rose to, the, rose to the occasion and it showed based on our performance as a team. What was the response, CJ, after the ET NBA all-time first triple-double in, in such little time? The team was hype. I think you can see the video of them, you know, kind of jumping up to celebrate once he grabbed the rebound. Um, we really respect ET, what he's been able to accomplish, you know, with our team, for our team, and how we can cont continue to utilize him. His versatility as a passer, mid-range game defensively, being able to guard one through four, can probably switch on five, two if we need him to. I think that's been essential for us. And just for him to be able to be rewarded um, with a triple-double in under 25 minutes. That kind of shows you the sacrifices he's made. Shout-out to the Pull-Up Pod, having both Dame and E.T. on the show. More show on in a minute, but first, support for Pull-Up with C.J. McCollum comes from Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your very own professional website, choose a template you love, and customize it by adding your own text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Want even more for your website? You can easily start a blog, launch an online store, or create an event. Share everything in a click on social media and drive even more traffic to your site with SEO tools to get found on Google. Wix has all the tools you need to create the exact website you want. You can even create a beautiful website while listening to this podcast. Over 140 million people choose Wix to create their website. Create yours today. Get started now by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash pull up to get 10% off. Okay, back to the show. There's one more thing we got to get to before I let you go. Um, how about these fines? Draymond, 35. Steph, 25. And Kevin Durant, 15 large for, quote, public criticism of the officiating. Yeah, I think they definitely publicly criticize the officials. That game was crazy. That was one of the most intense, come from behind losses I've seen in a long time. Warriors being down nine, 10 points with um, a little over a minute left in the game to storm back. Um, controversial call on the KD, you know, swipe up uh, jumper when he kind of ripped through, shot it. Controversial call at the end of the game when they called the foul off ball on KD to essentially seal the game for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And then just seeing how the Warriors players reacted on Twitter, uh, during their post-game interviews and all that, uh, just really must have triggered uh, some anger from the NBA and some anger from the referees based on how they kind of showed them up. And I think it showed in the fines that they handed out. I'm surprised that Draymond Green got 35000 whereas the rest only got twenty five and fifteen. But maybe he said a little bit more uh, since he was on social media. Yeah, people will say, well, you know, twenty five, thirty five k um, you know, they're making millions. It doesn't matter. You, you tell me if I'm wrong. That still hurts, though. You see it leaving your account. Yeah. You're like, oh, I got fined 30000 for for some words. You know what I mean? You yeah. could have used it. You know, they always tell them, like, when y'all want to get fined, just send the money to the Boys and Girls Clubs, man. We could really take advantage of that and uh, help some of those kids out and put them in better positions to succeed. So hopefully the NBA and the MBPA can put that money to good use uh, with some of the charity stuff that uh, they continue to do, you know, across the world and 
make this world a better place with some of those fine money. Uh, really cool, moving on quickly, Dwayne Wade, his last game in the Garden. New York Knicks fans, they maybe aren't winning games, but they certainly are knowledgeable, and they gave D. Wade a well-deserved acknowledgement and appreciation. It was, an, it was just a wonderful ovation to see. I think he appreciated it as well. And then Channing Fry, talk about a guy that has done it right. This is from The Athletic. Quote, listen, I'm rich. I'm a champion. I'm 35 and retiring, and I'm living a great life. So if you think I suck... I'll see you at the LA Fitness in a year. And there's some choice language there. But Channing Fry, for someone that maybe hasn't been a star, he was a lottery pick, but hasn't been a star, what a career. He has won a championship. He made a lot of money. And to retire at 35, can't beat it. Yeah, I think it's a dope quote. And it kind of gives people perspective of, you know, how much they criticize athletes, how much they criticize certain players in this league, understanding that nine times out of ten, they can't do the jobs that, athletes do and they can't do them at that level and the fact that we make it look so easy also affects their mindset mentality and understanding and appreciation of why we get paid so much money so you got a guy like Shannon Fry who's probably getting tweets from people talking about oh you this you're that or you just shoot threes or you're whatever and uh, he just basically told him like look I'm happy I'm rich I'm 35 I'm retiring I'm living a great life and I'll be at LA Fitness Center uh, to, to essentially bust that ass next year so I think he's letting people know that He's ready to, you know, accept all challenges at LA Fitness. And I think that he's also giving people perspective of, you know, regardless of what you think about me, I've accomplished a lot and I'm retiring at 35, which is a serious bar because a lot of people aren't afforded the opportunity to retire at all, let alone at, at 35 years old and still be in good health and have made quite the living while winning a championship. So shout out to Shannon Fry, another guy who stays in Oregon in the summertime, very into wine. So I'm happy to get up with him and drink some good wine uh, at some point this summer. And I uh, hope he enjoys uh, the fruits of his labor because he's definitely earned it. And he's putting a lot of time, energy, and effort into this game and now deserves to enjoy what's left of, you know, his 40s and beyond. CJ, uh, true or false, you will be retired by the time you're 50. Yeah, I will be retired well before 50, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How about 40? Uh, no How chance 40? I'm playing until 50. Uh, I don't know, bro. I'll see. I'll see how I feel at 36, man. <laughs> Let's see how I feel at 36. But um, you never know. Your body changes. Your your situation changes. Your life changes with kids and families and all that stuff. So uh, it's just all about staying healthy and just really trying to enjoy the present. I want to really enjoy 27. Yeah, I think that's the goal. Really enjoy 27. Really finish this year strong and uh, worry about the rest when it when it gets here. Any great wines to uh, recommend? It's been a while since we've gone down this uh, rabbit hole of discussing wine. <laughs> Cue the wine music, please. I've been on the mend, if that makes sense. I've been hurt for a little while and I'm recovering, uh, working, rehabbing twice a day, getting back in the gym, getting my feet underneath me, and figuring out ways to get back on the court. But in my spare time, I've been reorganizing my cellar and figuring out what I should add to it. And recently I, I made a trip to Adelsheim as well as Bois Ferrer, and learned more about their uh, winery, the history of it, um, how they were started and uh, what they're looking to accomplish in the near future. And I, I thought that they're up to some really great things. And I would definitely like to recommend two things. I'd definitely like to recommend a Pinot from Adelsheim. They have some really good Pinot. And as I said before, some Blanc de Blancs. I'm um, trying to get the exact names for you, um, working on that. But 
I would definitely recommend taking a trip to Adelsheim. They have some really good stuff. Uh, it's beautiful scenery. And you're able to really just kind of get away from everything. It's out there in Newburgh. And if you do, you know, want to spend a little bit of money, I would recommend getting the Chilean Mountains Breaking Ground Pinot Noir, which, you know, prices for around 45 bucks. But if you're a member, you know, you can reduce that price significantly. They also have uh, two other Pinots that are more on the expensive side, depending on, you know, how much you want to spend on a Pinot. They have the Winderella Pinot Noir 2014. They have the Vintage 35 2012, which is one of my personal favorites. But I think the most bang for your buck is definitely the Breaking Ground. Um, because the breaking ground has a has a little bit of uh, taste from all three regions. Wow. You can't go wrong. It's among the top 1%. It's high acidity. Um, there's some cherry, raspberry, um, strawberry flavor. And uh, they take, essentially take a grape from three parts of Oregon, the Ch Chilean Mountains, and two other sites uh, around the Newburgh Dundee Hills area and form that, form that one together. And you have the breaking grounds, Pinot Noir. What's the uh, bottle cost on that? Like sixty? Yeah, the bottle cost is it's it's listed at forty five, but um, if you go with me, I can get it to you for thirty bucks or less. Oh, that's great, great value. Um, so I've been in Oregon a lot lately with the wines, but in terms of a California cab, I found one I really like that has some value because once you start going up over sixty or seventy, these cabs can get up to like one fifty in a minute. And so I went to Stag's Leap Artemis. It is a lower alcohol cab, not super big, but really good. And their 2014 and 2016 vintages have uh, really caught my eye. And again, it's like 60 bucks, 55 bucks, really can't beat it for a cab. Um, and I must say, I have been impressed with the Oregon wine. So to shift away from it took a lot. I added it to the list. We'll have to put out a, another list of the wines we've been able to digest over the course of our careers yeah exactly we'll have a we'll have like a, a massive uh you know gallery of wines and at some point i think you and me not only do we need to go to a winery together but we need to like i just feel like there's so much great wine out there that i haven't tried and we need to just we need to find a way to get a hold of this of these good grapes man we really do we got to have some kind of um, tasting session where we try like 25 wines that we've never tried before. That would be dope. And I have a lot of standing offers to record podcasts at wineries, not just in Oregon, oh, okay. either, but in other locations. Okay. So I, I have, whenever. I recently got one as well um, in France, of all places. And uh, in France. Oh, that's yeah, nice. Pull up pod spans the globe, baby. Globally. It really does. And, we global. Uh, we, we, we global and. I think at some point we'll have to we'll have to do one of those or multiple. So, in the meantime, my man, um, keep resting up, getting getting healthy, and playoffs are right there. We can't wait to see you out there. Yeah, I'm looking forward to returning, man. And we want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. As always, Jordan, I hope you enjoy your time in Kona. Get you some rest. Get you some time away from the computer, away from basketball. Uh, refresh because it's going to be a long April, May, June. So rest up while you can. I got you, man. And you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, radio.com backslash pull up with CJ or wherever you get your shows. Also, before we get off the pod, I want to say uh, shout out to Nipsey Hustle and his family. Uh, praying for you. Uh, wishing you nothing but happiness as we move forward. Obviously, this is a trying time uh, for the not only the rap community, but 
the athletic community as well as his family. So uh, rest in peace, I'm praying for you. And don't forget to pull up, pull up.